Why did Henry VIII leave the Church of Rome and set up his own church in England? Well, pretty much everyone who knows a bit of British history has an answer to the question. It was, as we were told as little children, because Henry fell in love with Anne Boleyn and the Pope wouldn't let him marry her. Or maybe it had something to do with a grab for power, or even for cash. The problem is that when you investigate the historical evidence, none of these explanations really seems to work. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Now, maybe you're thinking that Henry VIII's break with Rome is a sort of national treasure that nobody would ever think of changing. You know, the romantic story of his affair with Anne Boleyn and his trouble getting a divorce. Well, the thing is, for years now, historians have thought that something else entirely must have been going on. The good news is that each time we banish our preconceptions, take a new look at stories like this, we find they just get better. But first, let's look at the story everyone knows. Henry VIII comes to the English throne in 1509 and marries Catherine of Aragon, a Spanish princess. Actually, she'd been married before, to Henry's older brother, but only for a few weeks before he died. This turns out to be important later. Catherine and Henry have six children, but only one of them survives, Mary, who's born in 1516. Well, as the years go past, we're told, it becomes obvious that Catherine can't have any more children. And, the usual narrative continues, she gets overweight and unattractive and stuffily preoccupied with her Catholic religion. So Henry loses interest in her. More important, he's anxious not to leave his kingdom to his daughter Mary. He wants, we're told, a boy, a male heir. Most important of all, of course, he falls in love with Anne Boleyn, who we're told is a bright and attractive young courtier. Anne, however, refuses to become Henry's mistress. She insists that if the king wants her, he first has to marry her. In some versions of the story, Anne's scheming uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, is using her to seize power over the king. In some stories, Anne's pushing Henry to become a Protestant. In other older versions, Anne's a witch with six fingers on one of her hands. Either way, or so we're told, Henry sets out to get a divorce. But Henry's problem is that he's blocked by the Pope. And after five years of hopeless arguing, theological wrangling, Henry gives up trying to get a divorce in the normal way and threatens to leave the Roman Catholic Church. Henry also, or so the school textbooks tell us, has an eye on the vast wealth of the church. Well, it would, you can imagine, come in very handy to a profligate king like Henry. And this is where Anne, the old story goes, sensing victory, finally allows herself to become pregnant. So now the clock's running down for Henry. He must make her child his legitimate heir. And led along by his skilful and ruthless new henchman, Thomas Cromwell, Henry decides to quit the Catholic Church, set up his own Protestant one, and give himself a divorce and marry Anne. And the rest is history. Or perhaps not. The problem is that virtually not a syllable of this stands up to historical scrutiny anymore. Most historians who know the period well just don't believe a word of it. 
Now, this is a part of history that's been written about and rewritten about, considered and reconsidered over and over in the last century and a bit. It's one of the most trampled fields of English historical real estate. It's a story where, as you will well imagine, angels fear to tread. But we do want to give another pass, so we're just going to run this thing through our history coffee machine and see what comes out. The first thing we can do is decide what we don't know. You could call it tamping down our evidence. And what we discover straight away is that we know much less than we imagined about Anne Boleyn. Most of what we've been told is based on evidence that's just far too flimsy to take seriously. You can find out much more about her in our standalone episode on Anne Boleyn. But for now, let's just sum up some headlines. The bit about Anne being a witch comes from Catholic propaganda in her Protestant daughter Elizabeth's time. The part about Anne persuading Henry to turn Protestant comes from Protestant propaganda in Elizabeth's time. And the story about the scheming uncle first appears in a novel published in 1912. When Henry had Anne executed in 1536, he seems to have destroyed every image and every scrap of paper relating to her. There isn't even a portrait that we can be sure represents how she looked. Now, 17 of Henry's love letters to Anne got through, some of them in the King's schoolboy French. Somebody had smuggled them out of England before Anne died. Chief suspect, in fact, is a Catholic cardinal, since the letters ended up in the Pope's archive in Rome. Now, some historians have tried to use these letters to reconstruct Henry's affair with Anne. Well, you would, wouldn't you? But when you look more closely, they tell us much less than you'd hope. First of all, not one of them is dated. Neither, despite what you read in some history books, do we have any of Anne's replies. Now, it's true that Henry's letters are full of expressions of affection and male longing. We'll look at one in particular in our discussion on Anne. But we have to be careful here. We need to understand what kind of historical documents we're dealing with here with these letters. This kind of overheated language was typical of a genre of Tudor writing often known as courtly love. We know that poems in this style circulated freely at the Tudor court and that imagery of this kind was the staple of jousts and court entertainments. It was punctuated with expressions of desire and talk of young men's dying devotion to their mistresses. But, for most of the time at least, this was nothing but a kind of courtly play-acting, a species of banter among the rich young things at court. It passed over into court entertainment and sometimes also into casual flirtation, which went, we should add, both ways. You see, marriage among these people was, after all, a question of cash, not of love. This courtly writing was a bit of harmless fun before the serious business began. So Henry's letters to Anne can't even necessarily tell us that he was in love with Anne. Almost without exception, what they tell us is that Henry and Anne were playing the game at court, the same as everybody else. Since they have no dates and contain no references to anything by which we could securely date them, the letters are also useless for telling us when the relationship between Henry and Anne began. Now, some historians have speculated that it was in 1526, but there's no convincing proof of their relationship until the summer of 1527. Now, the chance survival of some sheets from Henry's accounts in August of that year show him giving Anne extravagant gifts during his summer progress, his annual summer tour outside London. Now, historian George Bernard has worked out that by that date, August 1527, Anne must have been 26. 
This matters because the average age at which women like Anne Boleyn usually got married, we're talking of a younger daughter of a minor noble family, was between 13 and 16. It was the Tudor poor who got married in their late 20s. In fact, by 1527, Anne had only just reached the lowly rank at court of maid of honour. She'd had two failed engagements already and must have begun to appear by the standards of the time rather old and unmarriageable. Now, many contemporaries commented on the exceptional beauty of the women at the English court. Many, like Anne, would have played music and acted in court entertainments. But there's no evidence that Henry fell for Anne because she shone as the brightest young star at court. There's almost no evidence that Berlin stood out in any way at all. I say almost, because there was just one way in which Anne was different. It had nothing to do with being witty, beautiful or talented. It was that she'd grown up in the French court and spoke fluent French. In fact, uniquely in Henry's court, she could have passed for a Frenchwoman. And that, as we shall see, is key to understanding why Henry began his flirtation with her, probably in 1527. What we do know is that the most important part of the traditional story, that Anne refused to become Henry's mistress and pushed him into divorce, was an invention. Anne Boleyn may be one of the most familiar figures in British history, but we know remarkably little about her. We know that she was rather old to be an unmarried maid at Henry's court. We know that it's difficult to think of any other way in which she stood out except that she'd grown up in France and could have been mistaken for French. Now, one of the most persistent myths surrounding Anne Boleyn is that she refused to become Henry's mistress. She wouldn't, so the old story goes, sleep with the king until he married her. Now, when you clear away all the old debris on the table and stop for a moment and think about it, the notion that a very junior and comparatively ageing maid at court held out on Henry VIII, notoriously irascible monarch that he was, for five years is, well, it's just plainly ridiculous. Or shall we say, it's exceedingly unlikely. And when we stop to look more closely, it's obvious exactly where this story comes from and why there's no reason at all for us to believe it any longer. The myth that Anne held out on Henry was invented by a man named Reginald Poole, spelt P-O-L-E. He was a brilliant young theologian, a cousin of the king who'd been financing his studies. But Poole's situation was uncomfortable. Not only did he have royal Plantagenet blood in his veins, which was always a risk in Henry's court, but he'd also always openly sympathised with Catherine. So when it was obvious that Henry was going to marry Anne, he'd very sensibly removed himself to Italy. In 1535, two years after Henry had married Anne, he demanded that young Poole stop hiding in Italy and declare publicly his support for his divorce from Catherine. Well, what Poole wrote in response is known as De Unitate. It was so critical of Henry that Poole kept what he was writing secret even from his servants in Italy. In his book, he states bluntly that the king had broken the unity of the church and damned his soul. But Poole hadn't written his cousin Henry off. He tried to open a door for him to put things right. It hadn't, he wrote, been Henry's fault. You have, he wrote to his cousin, been, quotes, enslaved by your passion for a girl. But she wouldn't give you your will unless you rejected your wife, whose place she longed to take. So this is where the story comes from. Poole suggested that for years Anne refused to become Henry's mistress. Anne held out on him and insisted Henry marry her. 
What he was trying to do was to give Henry a face-saving way of returning to the Church of Rome. Henry could, suggested Poole, put all the blame on Anne. It was Anne who'd entrapped him and forced him into this crazy scheme of taking over the church. Well, Henry'd been foolish, but he wasn't really to blame. Henry could still extricate himself, put Anne aside, return to the true faith, and all without much loss of face. Well, we can now be sure that Poole's story was an invention. In 2010, the historian George Bernard published research on a document that proves that Poole's story just isn't true. It's among papers that Henry sent to the Pope in 1527. Historians have known about this document for many years, but only in a 19th century copy. Bernard went back to the original, and there he discovered a few crucial words the 19th century editor had left out. In them, Henry freely admits to the Pope that he's been sleeping all along with a woman he wants to marry. Well, there's no doubt at all that he means Anne Boleyn. The 19th century editor had either accidentally, or perhaps deliberately, missed these words out. It's tempting to think that that was because he was a Church of England clergyman, and Anne was then regarded as something of a Church of England heroine. Couldn't go spoiling the old myth about how chaste she'd been, resisting the advances of the lustful King Henry VIII. Anyway, Bernard's discovery means that we know there's no truth in the old myth that Henry was driven to set up his own church because Anne Boleyn held out on him. Henry told the Pope plainly in 1527 that he was sleeping with her. From the start of their relationship, Anne Boleyn was just another mistress in the king's bed. So once you strip away the layers of later myth, Anne Boleyn, in fact, becomes much less important to this story than she used to. We no longer have to believe that a minor figure at court defied her headstrong monarch year after year, compelling him to threaten the peace, perhaps even the salvation of his people, through the persistence of her sex appeal. It becomes clear that something else entirely was going on. But much of the rest of the well-known story is also based on evidence that's too flimsy to take seriously. We can't take seriously Henry's protest that he needed a male heir, and that his kingdom risked civil war if he leaves it to his daughter. Until 1525, long after Catherine had had her last pregnancy, Henry showed absolutely no concern about producing a male heir. Whatever he said later, he had for years told everyone he was quite content for his daughter Mary to succeed to the throne of England. Once the divorce campaign gets going, Henry's letters and messages to the Pope are full of dire warnings about the risks England faces if there's no male heir. But of course, what Henry's trying to do here is ramp up the pressure on the Pope. He knows that Popes normally respond when monarchs are concerned about state security. So these letters and messages about the risk of civil war without a male heir are just too tainted with special pleading to be of any use as evidence of Henry's real intentions. The same goes for the warnings Henry's messengers gave to the Pope at various times that the King would break away from the Roman Church if he didn't get what he wanted. Well, they would of course say that, it doesn't mean all along that Henry was seriously thinking of breaking away of schism. Maybe he was, but we'll need better evidence than these letters. It's not even true that Pope Clement made Henry's situation impossible. As the great early 20th century Tudor historian A.F. Pollard showed us as long ago as 1902, the Pope himself tried to persuade Henry to get on and marry Anne as well as Catherine. Three times, in fact, between December 1527 and September 1528, the Pope 
told Henry to get on and sort the case out in England, divorce Catherine and Marianne. Nor is there any clear connection, in the way school textbooks try to claim, between Henry's takeover of the church and his chronic shortage of cash. Henry didn't take any more of the church's revenues for himself, or not any more than he'd always done. The dissolution, or closing down, of the monasteries did eventually land him with a huge windfall, especially in land. But that wasn't until later, a process that didn't even begin until 1534. It was the project of Thomas Cromwell, who, as we shall see, contrary to what used to be taught and many still believe, had had very little to do with Henry's break from Rome. So this certainly wasn't why Henry got started on his divorce. So when we tamp down the evidence and ask what we don't know, we realise that there's hardly anything to support the usual tales about Henry and his break with the Church of Rome. There's no evidence for the story that Henry was so bothered about not having a male heir, he was prepared to jettison his Spanish queen, and because the Pope wouldn't let him, he got rid of the Catholic Church for good measure. And we've shown that he was already sleeping with Anne Boleyn, so he wasn't blinded by unrequited desire, nor was it a question of cash, so what was he up to? Many modern historians have a theory that Henry's main purpose in breaking with the Pope and setting up his own church was to give himself more power. Well, it's a very good suggestion, so far as it goes, and we'll take a proper look at it next time at our History Café. But before we can do that, we need to think about the broader context. In particular, we need to know what else was going on at Henry's court. We call it looking round the room. It's always a good historical filter to use. Now, the trick is to leave behind the usual suspects that historians have got into the habit of talking to and take a moment to glance around a bit, pull up some more chairs, widen the conversation... Maybe go sit somewhere else, see things from a different perspective. And the most obvious thing to do in this case is to get to know Catherine of Aragon a bit better. Well, as soon as we ask the question, we discover that Catherine has been badly neglected. The American historian Garrett Mattingly wrote a full-dress academic biography of her back in 1942. Mattingly is a fine historian. His book about the Spanish Armada of 1588 was for decades the standard account and it's still worth reading. But his work on Catherine, which is also excellent, has been almost completely ignored. You hunt in vain for a reference to it in any one of the major works on Henry VIII. There have been a couple of more recent studies, perhaps the most interesting of them written by a journalist, Giles Tremlett, who knows Spain and the Spanish documents well. But Catherine is still waiting for a modern academic biography. As soon as you get to know Catherine a bit better, you realise you need to take her a lot more seriously. Everyone who saw them agreed that the party-loving Henry and Catherine his queen got on exceedingly well. She wasn't, whatever the later myth, a religious bore. She went hunting with Henry, taught him to hunt with hawks like the Spanish did. She had herself painted with her hair down as the sinner Mary Magdalene and complained that on religious fast days she couldn't get meat to eat at court. Now it's true that while she was young, Catherine had acquired a reputation for rather harsh religious fasting. Everyone had become so worried about her loss of weight that the Pope had written to her fiancé, Henry, to tell him to do something about it before she became infertile. But Giles Tremlett has suggested that all of this might not have been a question of too much piety, but of anorexia. Of course, anorexia wasn't diagnosed until the late 19th century, so nobody in Catherine's time would have recognised it. 
but historians of the disease have traced what looked like a number of examples back to the 14th century. And it wouldn't have been at all surprising if, as a teenager at the English court, Catherine had become anorexic. You recall that she was first married to Henry's brother. Well, he died in 1502. She was then quickly engaged to marry Henry, but they didn't in fact marry until 1509. In the meantime, Catherine was kept at the English court. She was 17 in 1502 and made to live in miserable conditions, largely ignored not only at court in England, but also by her Spanish family. It may therefore be that some of Catherine's later reputation for being over-religious was based on misunderstanding what had really been going on when she'd been a teenager and in her early 20s. It would have been quite understandable if she'd become anorexic in those years. Anyway, after the marriage, far from trailing along as Henry's dull and distant Spanish shadow, Catherine was a major influence at court. In a recent unpublished doctoral thesis, Michel Beer has shown that in the early years of his reign, Henry actively and consistently looked to Catherine for advice. When he went campaigning in France in 1513, he named her as regent and governess to govern in his absence rather than any of his privy councillors. Now, it wasn't unique in the 16th century, but it's clear that Catherine made a supremely good job of it. She sent a stream of witty and intimate letters to Henry, showing the couple working as a real partnership. She also kept up correspondence with Thomas Wolsey, who was then organising Henry's campaign in France. Back in England, Beer found Catherine's name all over the administrative documents of those months. There was no doubt at all who was in charge. In August of 1513, King James IV of Scotland launched a major invasion with 30,000 men. Well, I might guess he was hoping to profit from Henry's absence in France. Catherine raised an army, ticking off towns like Gloucester that failed to send any soldiers. She then marched towards the Scots with her men. One report even has her making a speech to her troops so warlike it reminded everyone of her feisty mother Isabella of Castile. It might remind us of Elizabeth I's much more famous speech, which she's supposed to have given to her forces during the Spanish Armada. In the event, Henry had foreseen the Scots' move and had organised an army to patrol the northern border. Catherine had only got as far as Buckingham when news came that the army in the north had inflicted a crushing defeat on the Scots at Flodden. The Scots king, James IV, was killed. Catherine now proposed sending his body to Henry in France in celebration. She was only talked out of it by her more squeamish courtiers. But the victory at Flodden outshone anything Henry achieved while he was in France. Catherine's months as regent and the oddly titled governess were so impressive that they were still being written about in the 1590s. Catherine had very evidently mastered the machinery of Tudor government and she went on playing a central role in it. Beer finds, for example, that Catherine was always much more powerful than Margaret, Henry's sister, who'd been married to the ill-fated King James of Scotland. Catherine was also in her own right a major and very active landholder and an important source of patronage. She consciously created an image of queenly magnificence that bolstered Henry's rule. She was, Beer concludes, always, and unlike Anne Boleyn, widely popular with English people. Catherine of Aragon was in her own right a very major force in England. In fact, Catherine was so secure a figure at court that she was unaffected, even by Henry's long string of mistresses. And whatever we're usually told, Catherine's close relationship with the king went on long after he took up with Anne Boleyn. 
two separate ambassadors reported that Henry and Catherine were still sleeping together in 1528, and there's some similar evidence even from late 1529. That's at least two and a half years after the affair with Anne had started and the campaign for the divorce had begun. But we haven't even got to the most important role Catherine of Aragon played at Henry's court, and that was to maintain England's key alliance with Spain. start to look more closely at Catherine, we realise that even before the start of Henry's reign, she'd been a very significant player at the English court. But above all, she had always played a key role in maintaining England's pivotal alliance with the Spanish. Now we get used to thinking of the Spanish as England's enemy. We forget that this is a later development. For the English, it was for many years France that was the great threat, and Spain the best ally and trading partner. That's, after all, why Henry's older brother had married Catherine, and why Henry hurried to do the same thing when he became king. For decades, from the 1490s to the mid-1520s, the Spanish alliance was the cornerstone of English foreign policy and overseas trade. In the years between Catherine's marriage to Henry's brother and her marriage to Henry, her father had appointed her Spanish ambassador in England. And long after her marriage, she, as well as the king and his advisers, received and briefed ambassadors at court. Catherine became, in her own right, a heavyweight diplomat in foreign affairs. She was, after all, a daughter of a king and queen of Spain, an aunt of their successor, Charles V. Many people know the story of Henry's meeting in 1520 with the king of France, Francis I, at what became known as the Field of the Cloth of Gold. They met for several days outside Calais in northern France, surrounded by dozens of their nobles. The two kings joust in the rain and wrestle with each other. Henry loses. But much less well known is the meeting Henry had at Canterbury on his way to the Field of the Cloth of Gold. It was with Charles V, King of Spain, ruler of Burgundy, much of Germany, Catherine's nephew. Catherine was at the heart of the preparations for the meeting and she, Henry and Charles, had spent a significant part of it alone without the advisers. Henry, Catherine and Charles apparently got on famously. And a follow-up meeting between the two sides was held at Bruges immediately after the Cloth of Gold. Now Catherine was actively working to undermine any new friendship Henry might have struck up wrestling with the King of France. At Bruges, the English and Spanish agreed that when she was old enough, Henry and Catherine's daughter Mary, the future Queen of England, would marry Charles, King of Spain. Well, it was a huge coup particularly for Catherine, it would cement the Anglo-Spanish alliance for at least another generation. So, we should stand back for a moment from all the popular images with which we've grown up. Catherine's importance was always much greater than her role as a brood mare or a bedroom playmate. And all this changes the way we need to think about Henry's campaign for a divorce. Henry was proposing to jettison a major English landowner, a leading statesman and diplomat, an enormously influential, widely connected, hugely popular and deeply informed player at his court. Catherine's carefully cultivated royal magnificence had become completely entangled with Henry's own. She'd always been Henry's queen and partner in power in a way that Anne Boleyn could never be. Sending Catherine away wasn't about having a boy to succeed Henry or lust for a younger woman. It was a political earthquake. But above all, this would be a major split with England's long-standing allies, the Spanish. 
It had profound implications for England's foreign policy, her trade and perhaps even her security. So tamping down our evidence and widening the frame tells us that if we're looking for Henry VIII's intentions in his campaign for a divorce from Catherine, what we'll have to do is to understand much more about his foreign policy. Well, that changes everything, because like any early modern monarch, Henry was far more preoccupied with foreign policy than anything else. You see, we get so used to governments that are principally concerned with the economy, we forget it's just a modern development, mid-19th century at the earliest. For a 16th century monarch, the primary concern was always foreign policy. There was a pressing need for Henry, as for English and British governments before and ever since, to keep the Channel crossings open for trade and the coastline safe from invasion. But the fundamental problem for Tudor monarchs, and for late 15th century rulers before them, was the loss of the English Empire in France in the middle of the 15th century. It put the other side of the Channel almost entirely in foreign hands, but just as serious, it left the English crown chronically short of cash. Henry's basic conundrum, as it had been for his father, was that his neighbours, the French and the Spanish, were vastly larger and wealthier than he was. From their perspective, the English were a feeble island nation, less significant in international diplomacy than Venice. The only way for the English to make themselves matter was to sign up to an alliance with one or other of these huge European neighbours. Henry's father, Henry VII, had seized the English throne with a French army. But in the course of his reign, he opted instead for a Spanish alliance. Why? It was primarily because at that time, the Spanish were the weaker of his two great neighbours, and therefore more in need of the English as allies. They were also, as we've mentioned before, England's best trading partner, with the wool markets in Spanish-held Antwerp. And at first, Henry VIII followed the policy he'd inherited from his father, keeping in with the Spanish. Almost the first words he spoke on becoming king were to announce his intention to invade France. Almost his first act was to seal the Spanish alliance by marrying Catherine. But that means that Henry VIII's decision to push Catherine out signified an absolutely fundamental shift in foreign policy away from the Spanish. And since, from the start of Henry's reign, foreign policy had always been his central preoccupation, that changes all the rules about the way we should understand his divorce. This wasn't just an earthquake that would shake his court to its foundations. It was also a whirlwind that threatened to sweep away the whole structure of English security and trade that had been built up over a generation. In fact, what's surprising to us is that Henry's divorce isn't always examined primarily in the context of his European diplomacy. But it isn't. In fact, most historians nowadays have a completely different explanation for what Henry was up to. As we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Café Pod. History Café Pod.